0: You're tuning into the podcast series, We Talk Cyber with Monica, your platform for engaging discussions and expert opinions on all things cyber. For more information, check out MonicaTalkCyber.com. And let's hop right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of We Talk Cyber. This is your host, Monica. Today, we have a very interesting guest, someone who is not a stereotypical security professional but a business professional. So welcome, Christopher, to the podcast show today. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Monica. Doing just great.
0: Lovely to have you on the show today, Christopher. Uh, would you like to say a few words about yourself to the audience and maybe a fun fact about yourself?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, my name is Christopher Ernest. Uh, I was, until recently, uh, Chief Digital Officer of uh, s uh, Norway's leading digital bank. Uh, been digital only since 2000. Uh, now I'm... After being on the sea level position for quite some time, I'm doing my own company uh, to enjoy the freedom and answer only to myself. Uh, basically management consulting on everything, strategy and digital commercialization. Um, fun fact, that's, Always a difficult question. Uh, I'm extremely interested in music, used to play in a band, uh, had a dual life, uh, being a banker in the day and rock star by night, Uh, but I had to just focus on being a banker by day and a dad when I come home as I got older, so I've left that behind, but it's still a big part of me.
0: That's amazing. Lovely to have you over. So let's, uh, let's, since you mentioned it, you worked uh, quite many years as Chief Digital Officer. What is Chief Digital Officer? What does the role entail?
1: I think if you ask 10 CDOs, you will get 10 different answers uh, because that's one of the titles that's up to every organization to fill. Uh, like, like a CFO, everybody knows what a CFO is. That's the same in almost every company. Uh, in my case, it was being in charge of business development and innovation, uh, as well as everything within IT. Uh, That also included uh, security. I had to meet myself in the door a couple of times during those years.
0: Interesting, because being a part of digitalization and then also being responsible for security and cost is obviously can be tricky. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as the digital officer or just in general working with digitalization over the years
1: well having such a broad control span, one of the biggest challenges was how to manage my own time uh, because it was expected of me to have equal weighted uh, spending of time between the different parts of the organization but when the servers are down or there was a security issue of course i would spend 100% of my time on fixing that uh, breach or keeping the uptime at our required levels and innovation would get 0% of my time so that that is one challenge um, but But also in in banking, uh, there's always something new to do, Uh, keeping ahead of regulations, keeping ahead of compliance, uh, making sure that uh, that's why I really got into cybersecurity after working more more on the business side of banking for many years before I got this role. Uh, Seeing that having stable stable operations and state-of-the-art cybersecurity, that's the entry ticket to doing anything with it within innovation, basically. So I told this to everybody in the organization, this has to be a number one priority. When I'm comfortable that we are on top of this, then we can start innovate, and then we can start challenging status quo. So there was really strict level. We need to be at this level before we really got to experiment and do all the fun, fun. well, we're talking security. I think it's fun, but the fun uh, for everybody and <laughs> stuff.
0: So, how did your role basically um, complement it and work with the CISO? Or what do you think are the complementary uh, responsibilities between a, in a digitalization officer and an information or security officer?
1: Uh, well, again, there are different setups there. Uh, Some choose to have the CISO within the IT organization. Uh, we had the CISO in the risk organization, which acted as a counterpart for IT. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a second line type type of role, uh, being uh, a conversation partner, uh, not only for the security department also for me. And uh, that was extremely valuable. We had really good discussions, and, and having somebody who had had being paranoid as their <laughs> primary job was a good um, it was a good reminder that we need to be uh, always vigilant and always looking out for how can we improve in the next uh, next phase of things. Uh, uh, but also within the banking community, we collaborate a lot on on cybersecurity. And that was also a valuable part, having open lines to the CISO of other banks between the banks and sharing uh, intelligence, sharing information of what was going on, uh, which allowed us to stay ahead of what was coming uh, in terms of uh, security threats. and Seeing that planned attacks were being set up in advance um that really allowed us to put up a perimeter uh, beforehand rather than sitting in there and not knowing what happened afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. So the point that you mentioned actually is quite interesting because you said that you had these requirements, okay, that we should come to this level at least when it comes to security And that you're happy and satisfied with it before you really start like uh, taking it up a notch and being innovative in that sense. How do you see these being positive or negative in the way different organizations do it? Is it important to start buying technology already in advance or is it first doing the basic stuff in the beginning before you start thinking of like, okay, let's procure more stuff and get like a box that will help us build security?
1: Well, uh, the short answer is that there's no silver bullet to it. Uh, And sometimes there's a new technology, a new software that you can buy off the shelf, which can heighten your security. Uh, And that's basically... uh, weighting your uh, risk appetite versus your cost appetite. It's always to pay your way out of that. Um, Then there's uh, managed services, where you outsource parts of your portfolio to a vendor. Um, Then it's more of a governance type of issue, that you need to have good governance principles in place in order to do periodical control and having really good control of what your vendors are doing. And then there's the last part. That's probably the hardest part. That's the code that you write yourself. Um, having a strong sense of cybersecurity really ingrained and embedded in both the the, uh, the heads and also the hearts of your developers, I think that's crucial to really be, be secure. Having uh, cybersecurity at the code level uh, gets you way longer than buying all sorts of perimeter type of uh, defense uh, systems especially when a lot of our innovation were related to building an open platform integrating third parties um, using apis to as tools for business developments and Mm. as everybody know you you when you open up APIs and you start connecting with the world around you, you increase the number of attack vectors uh, numerous times. So. Venturing into that playing field, you really need to know what you're doing in terms of cybersecurity if you want to do the open platform type of play. And mm-hmm. if you look at if you look at all the big scandals at the platform companies, like we, we know, uh, they have many of them have been related to uh, API vulnerabilities uh, of some sort.
0: mm mm-hmm. So, what were some of the biggest security and privacy challenges that you've seen and encountered?
1: It's difficult pointing out one particular big challenge. Uh, I gotta say a big shout out to my old guys, uh, my old colleagues. They were really, really uh, staying ahead and uh, really engaged in in the um, uh, in the field of cybersecurity, but acknowledging that this this is an arms race. Every single day is an arms race, and you will never be finished when it comes to cybersecurity. I, I think that's the the biggest uh, uh, key takeaway that I can um, look back on. That you you can never be happy. Uh, you have to be paranoid. You have to think like a crook, uh, even though you you might seem like you are this kind of paranoid, strange guy who's just, I've been saying this for a while, and people react when I say it like, you have to think like a crook. You have to really acknowledge that there are bad people out there. And I've had some heat discussions at dinner parties over over this, everybody's good on the inside. well, when you are responsible for IT in a bank, you can't afford to assume that people are good on the inside, because the truth is, there will be somebody, and it only takes one, one person who is inherently bad uh, to do malicious things uh, to our infrastructure. So I think that kind of mindset, without tipping it over, uh, is a fine balance. And uh, my role of having such a broad console, control span, everything from innovation to IT operations, it was all about balance. Balance was the key in, in everything that I did.
0: Mm -hmm. And what you said here is probably very critical. When you talk about insider threat, uh, it's not easy to talk about it because you're now basically insinuating that maybe some of the employees don't have the right motive. And the actors can obviously, both external and internal, can have wrong motivation. But the key really, as you say, is correct. How do you talk about it or come across as that now you're just pointing fingers at everybody? That's not really the case. But just having in the back of the head that yes that could happen are there like some examples how have you dealt with this kind of like insider threat topic in general
1: well it's awareness uh it's extremely important and you asked the role of the CISO the CISO did a tremendous job of doing internal uh learning efforts all this all the time Uh, whether it was phishing attacks or, or downloading something that you shouldn't do, because a lot of times, the weakest link is is always the human factor, it's always the human error, which is the weakest link. You can buy, like I said, you can buy all sorts of threat protection and try to uh, secure yourself in some kind of way. You can take away the internet for everybody in inside the company and just exclude yourself from the outside world. But if somebody brought an USB stick to your, to the, Stationary computer in the office, then it doesn't help. So, really, having a well-educated workforce uh, is the best you can do in terms of uh, staying staying secure. Um, mm-hmm. I think also having uh, having a culture that is ready for that. It's impossible to be 100% secure and believing that you are able to shut down every single vulnerability there will always be something there uh, and you need to be prepared to have the fastest possible response time to close that gap when it is discovered
0: mm-hmm. So you talked about a bit about the API, right? You mentioned that, okay, but if you look at the one of the biggest things that have uh, or attacks that have happened, a lot of the cases in a lot of times API and weak API or open APIs are the reasons for it. And we talked a bit about fintech. So let's, let's oh. j- jump over to fintech. What were some of the challenges that you have seen in terms of this open banking and going towards open banking in terms of both security and privacy?
1: Well, now you no, really, uh, now we are in my home, home turf here uh, because um, open banking, the, the starting narrative for open banking was that the bank should be platforms so they could be an app store for a lot of fintechs and consumer can choose which fintechs they wanted to use and they will lie on top of the banking infrastructure. Uh, I quickly realized that this, this is a scenario that's close to impossible to really uh, implement. So how how should you have uh, the ability to oversee uh, and govern like not only 10 to five different small FinTechs that should have access to your infrastructure on behalf of the customer when you as a bank are, uh, you are responsible at the end of the day, the bank is responsible for the risk or both the IT risk, but also the um, the balance risk the risk of kyc the bank the risk of anti money laundering so the the amount of governance compliance and legal work uh required to really uphold that mission for, for me it was not uh it was not sustainable uh, so so i uh, <clears throat> i basically abandoned that uh scenario many years ago. Um, That's why in our open banking efforts, we we consumed data from third parties because then we had control. Uh, But when we had data exchange, we did it together with other financial institutions, people who are living under the same requirements as we did. Uh, In that case, when we had our uh, legal agreement for data exchange, our counterparts were under the same laws that we did we did a lot in open banking i'm really proud of everything we did but we had like i said we had a very limited box there was no thinking out of the box uh, but we challenged uh what was possible to do within the box that were of course secure and compliant. Because at the end of the day, uh, what do you want from your bank? You want a cool bank or do you want a secure bank? So I know which one I would choose, but maybe maybe I'm old and conservative, but I, I'd rather have somebody who takes care of my money or and takes care of my data than somebody who's cool and a bit sloppy on that end.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I think um, I would... I would obviously want both secure and cool if that's possible. But if I had to choose, then security, obviously, when you talk about money and you're talking about millions and millions of dollars in transactions, security is definitely important. I mean, I did one of these talks where I talk about the mobiles and how we have evolved with the rotary phones that we had like uh-huh. uh, decades ago to the mobile that we have today where we my our whole health banking apps... Every critical data, every critical application is on this device. If I lose this device today, I think I'm going to lose literally a very important part of my world. And the reason we do that, we have evolved from having majority of our aspects into a small device is because we kind of have that implicit trust. And if we start realizing that the trust is completely broken, one would think a hundred times before somebody would put money in there. So, yes, def- definitely a secure bank would would have to trump over a cool bank.
1: Yeah, because that's the basic business model is trust. Uh, so, I've been thinking a lot about what is the business model of banking when I'm working with innovation. And to the core of it, banking is built on trust, and trust is the core business model of banking. So, everything that could... Uh, Challenge that level of trust uh, is something that you should be really, really careful of doing. And, and I think that's one of the one of the key challenges that we need to overcome in, in terms of really making engaging and relevant and personal banking user experiences is is to put aside. Uh, Put aside the age-old myth that you you have to be secure on one hand, uh, usable on the other hand. Mm -hmm. You can be, you can have great user experience and still be secure. Mm -hmm. And it's it's slowly going away, but it's still a bit. It's there still.
0: So talking about fintech, because you mentioned, obviously, that you decided to go in a different way when it comes to the model and consume data, and but, but exchanged it with the counterparties that were also in the finance sector and the banks. How do you see, have IT giants like Apple and Google um, evolved in the fintech world? Well,
1: the good thing about being... No longer working at a bank, but working in banking in order that is that you can see these things coming from uh, way ahead. Uh, there, there's no doubt that both Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they are they want to get in on the action, especially on the payment side. They have vastly different motivations of, of doing so. Uh, but if you look at recent, just recent times developments now in the second half of. Um, Uh, 2020, Uh, Apple buying MobiWave, getting into the merchant side um, requirements uh, of payments, Uh, it's a game changer. Uh, We might not have seen the implications of it by the end of this year, but they will be able to have a really strong grasp of um, mobile payments if that uh, is to really take off. And if we see how... Uh, contactless payments have really, really skyrocketed uh, in this year of everything being turned upside down. Um, they have some good opportunities out there. Uh, and just imagine if Apple, they will never open the NFC chip on the iPhone of security reasons, of course, for once. And another reason is that when they keep it closed, they have monopoly on payments on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. So today they take 30% of all revenue on the App Store. If they get the same monopoly on payments through the through the iPhone, I know which percentage they take today. I cannot say it because it's an NEA. It's, it's small. I can say it's small. But it could increase uh, if they got a monopoly situation. I'm not sure what Google's motivation is, but they have partnered with a lot of uh, U.S. banks to offer checking and balance accounts, Uh, so they are doing stuff in collaboration with the banks. Um, They are constantly attempting to get in on the financial services playing field. Uh, What I find perhaps the most scary for especially the big uh, global banks is that they have failed so many times, but they keep trying. Uh, I, I, I started following Google's venture into banking and financial services in seven or eight years ago, and they're still trying. They're failing again, failing again, but then they, they never give up. The same with Facebook, they have been trying to get payments into the messenger platform for a while. It hasn't really taken off yet, but they keep pivoting, and they don't give up. Um, of course, Facebook lives off people's data. Everybody knows that. You are the product in Facebook. They they live off they basically manipulate you as a person what you will like before you know it yourself. And having payment data, the gold standard of personal data, is of course extremely valuable for a company mm-hmm. like Facebook.
0: Yeah, right. And so as you said that they are obviously being trying and, and they don't give up banks have also been trying. Where do you see how the collaboration do you think would go ahead or go forward in the years to come in this financial services, payment, fintech landscape, between banks and IT giants like Apple, Google? Will we see more collaboration? Will we see more competition? Where do you see it going in the future?
1: I I think that all depends on a couple of factors. I I think there will be no definitive global answer for it. Consumer behavior is vastly different between Nordic banking customers, European customers, and US banking customers, and then there's Asia, but that's a whole different discussion, so we don't have that much time today. Uh, And one of the reasons is trust in the the banks. Uh, Every time, every now and then, there's a survey done on what what kind of institutions do you trust, Uh, in Norway at least. Banks come out on top every single time and social media companies on the bottom bottom end of it. Banks are more trusted than the government in Norway. Uh, I don't remember the exact rankings in the US market, but it's different. Banks are <laughs> down the list significantly. Uh, they never recuperated, like we talked about earlier, the, the trust that were taken away uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. The big banks got bailed out, and the consumers were stuck with the bill, and that's Basically what was the spark that ignited the whole fintech uh, movement was to, we, we don't want this. Uh, but that was never the case in Norway. Uh, so so that's, that's shaping because at the end of the day, it is the consumers who make the choice. Who would they want to trust with their money. Uh, but perhaps if you look a bit more in the future, there could be possible to uh, divide between who keeps your money, and who you trust in managing your daily finances. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a different story, because that requires uh, a level of sophistication in really designing great user experiences that's way beyond what any bank has ever done before. There's so much more to do. Mm -hmm. It's It's still closer to... Uh, the good old paper-based account statement that I got in the mail once a month, then what I would have, I would have a personal trainer for my wallet or a self-driving bank. uh, Somebody who just took the decisions for me and made me a financially responsible person without me having to really do as much myself. Today, I do a lot of stuff myself. Uh, And I've been working now in banking for seven years. so. I can say I know this stuff. But for for the general consumer, there's, there's a lot of insecurity. There's a lot of questions related to everyday finances. How much should I save from, for pensions? How much should I save for uh, my next home? Uh, how much should I save for my children? There's so many questions. Um, it's really difficult to find what suits you. Uh, mm-hmm. So whoever manages to... Um, really hit the target of delivering that segment of one uh, user experience that t- makes personal finance relevant for me as an individual uh, would come out on top. If that is a bank, a fintech, Google, Apple, I don't know. Uh, I know that Apple uh, over time has proven that they are bits. Um, ahead of banks when it comes to designing beautiful user experiences. I think that's one of the factors that should be taken into account going forward also.
0: Yeah, I I think I totally agree with you on that one because I just was talking with one of the colleagues a couple of days ago on having like a financial advisor on my mobile through the help of bank in a more uh, seamless way. I mean, I've been in finance sector now 14 years and I I think I would still have I don't think I can do everything myself either. So that would that user experience really will be uh, the key. I, I, I see that as well. And talking about user experience and usability, because you touched on the topic, usability versus security. So you, from uh, IT, from a digitalization perspective, want to obviously make sure security is in place, Plus, it's usable, that one doesn't need to trade off between these two things, that one can actually, from a consumer perspective, have both security, can put trust in, and still have a good user experience. Keeping that in mind, what would be your top asks or requests from a CISO so that it enables you, and security enables you still to provide usability and user experience to your consumers?
1: Oh, that, that that's a difficult question. But I, I think uh, really staying ahead of how is fraud uh, developing right now? How are the most sophisticated fraudsters, fraudsters operating? Uh, something that is uh, based on tricking humans into doing something that they're it's not supposed to do. Like we have the Olga frauds in, uh, in the Norwegian market, people calling up and saying that they are from Microsoft and you need to give their accounts and so forth, and then they get into the bank. So staying ahead of... Um, the the modus operandi of of fraudsters. Uh, I think that's one of the areas that I really needed to know way ahead before we launched new functionality. How could you use this for malicious uh, intents? And uh, mm. if, if that matches with what we see is being is uh, becoming um, a common fraud technique, we need to rethink our UX.
0: Correct, correct. Yeah, makes total sense. Thank you so much. What would be your key takeaway or key message to CISOs and risk officers on one hand and to business leaders on the other hand?
1: Well, to the CISOs and the risk officers, uh, the ones I've talked to, I've been really impressed. So it's basically stay stay vigilant and expect the worst like they always do. Uh, and encourage every, everybody thinks like crooks when they design uh, new solutions. Uh like I said, how could anybody exploit this for malicious purposes? And for business leaders uh, as as myself, before I got into uh, being in charge of IT as well, uh, it's to really, really, really take into yourself that IT security, that's not IT's problem. Uh, This is everybody's concern. You cannot outsource cybersecurity to either a CISO or a CTO or anybody who knows how to spell IT. This is the concern of everybody in the top management, everybody at board level, uh, everybody in the middle management as well.
0: Very well said. Thank you, Gastor, so much for coming on the podcast show today. It was really lovely having you. Thank you. So, that was today's episode of We Talk Cyber. I'm your host, Monica. I'll be back with more amazing guests, fantastic conversations. So, keep tuning in. Until then, take care and stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to We Talk Cyber with Monica. Do not forget to subscribe to We Talk Cyber in your favorite podcast app and YouTube channel, Monica Talk Cyber. Take care and continue tuning in.